1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, we are picking up where we left off before Easter, before Good Friday and Easter, coming to the end of John's first letter. We read, starting in verse 7, that the apostle writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and in his love, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, well, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom for, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have found from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. When I was a boy in Georgia... One of our family's favorite vacation spots were the Great Smoky Mountains. They're only a few hours away. We drive up there. And I don't remember, as a youth, going to the Smoky Mountains one time that I didn't go with my grandparents. And so we would drive up there. And as you guys well know, I dearly loved my granddad. My father was never in my life. And so my granddad was the closest thing I had to a father figure. And my granddad loved the University of Alabama football. He was a huge Bama fan from way back in the Bear Bryant days. And so I wanted to be like my granddad, and I knew nothing of football, but I knew I liked Alabama. And so before we took off on one trip one time, my grandfather had purchased two Alabama baseball caps. I was about 10, I think. 
And he didn't know which one I might like, so he bought both of them. And I got to pick one, and he wore the other. And so this whole trip, we're both wearing these Alabama baseball caps. I got to wear my favorite one, and he wore the other one. We, one of the places we went was a place called Dollywood. I don't know if you're familiar with Dollywood, but Dolly Parton was a country music singer, is a country music singer, and she has this amusement park. And so we went with my family, and my brother loved roller coasters, but I did not. And so they went and rode roller coasters. But my granddad and I went around and did stuff. But I remember this distinctly. We went on this one ride. And I picked this ride because I thought that it wasn't crazy. <laughs> I thought it was one of these rides like in the 90s where you had the dancing animals, kind of like it's a small world, but it was supposed to be a firefighter-themed ride. And so we get on this roller coaster. My granddad and I are on the back car, and we're going along, and everything's great, and everything's fine, until all of a sudden we're going, it felt like, straight down in the dark. And he didn't realize it was a roller coaster either because we both had our baseball caps on. And so instinctively, he, he, I wish I, he could tell the story because he'd tell it far better than I can. But he said that he felt this little hand all of a sudden clamp down on the top of his head to hold his hat on because I wanted to make sure we didn't lose those two hats. <laughs> but I tell all that to say, as a boy, I wanted to be just like my granddad. The man taught me how to drive. He taught me how to use a two-man cross-cut saw. Uh, how to sing in the southern kind of Appalachian style, reading shape notes, and how to play baseball. He taught me things uh, through my whole life that stuck with me, like the love and service of one's country, that a man should work hard, that a man should be loyal, especially to his family. And even before I became a Christian, he taught me that the Bible was inerrant and sufficient for all of life. I wanted to be like my granddad. And as we will learn today, a Christian wants to be like his heavenly father. God is love. And so the church in turn loves one another just like God. Those who are truly saved will love the church because we are God's children and God's children will love one another. In today's passage, we will find three assuring attributes of the love of God. We are going to see that God sent his son for the propitiation of sins. We're going to see that God loves us and gave us his spirit that dwells within us, abides in us. And we are going to see that God's love is reflected through us to the rest of his children, to the church. Now, as we continue in 1 John, it's been a, we've had a week off for Easter, and just want to remind us that John writes to the churches of Asia Minor in the wake of false teaching. So false teachers have come into the church and then left, and the church is trying to figure out what's going on. And so he writes to them to remind them the basics of Christianity and explain how they can have assurance that they are in Christ. He says that genuine Christians believe in the risen Christ. They follow the apostolic teaching, and they test all teachers and all doctrines against this once and for all delivered faith. Genuine Christians pursue holiness. John teaches us that you can't be a true Christian and pursue sin and continue in sin. He says that you cannot walk in the light, you cannot claim to walk in the light, and walk in darkness. You walk in one or the other. And he says that genuine Christians love their brothers and sisters, that whoever genuinely loves the bride of Christ, the church, is from God. 
John presents us with this balanced Christian life. I've explained it before like a marksman sighting in his rifle. A marksman's not content to shoot to the left of the target saying, well, at least I didn't shoot to the right. A marksman's not content to shoot over his target saying, well, at least I didn't hit the dirt. But he shoots for the bullseye. He aims for the target. In the same way, Christians, genuine Christians, they believe truth. They pursue holiness and they love the church. All because God has first loved them. So the first thing we'll see is that because God is love, he sent his son for the propitiation of sins. Now, before we jump into this text, a lot like last week, we're going to jump around a little bit because it's a large text, but it's all one uh, uh, unit of thought. In other words, if we break it up, it's not going to make as much sense because it's one unit of thought that John is having. In fact, you might even can argue that this goes into chapter 5. And so we need to cover this together, but it's a large portion of Scripture, so we're going to kind of draw out three themes from this passage, all while expositing it and in its context. So the first thing we're going to see is that because God is love, he sent his son for the propitiation of sins. Look with me at verse 9. Verse 9 says, In this love of God, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So the first thing we see about this sending of God's Son from this passage is that the love of God was made manifest by sending his Son. Then Galatians 4:4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. Right? We know that passage from Christmas time. So God sent his son. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So in God's love, and in his eternal plan, he sent forth his son, that we might live through him. Jesus broke into human history. God in the flesh. God took on flesh and walked among his creation. We saw in the past weeks that Jesus is both David's offspring and his Lord. Jesus is both Mary's son and her God. Fully God, fully man. The eternal son came to earth as a man, but he did not come merely to visit us. Look at verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So not only did the son come to earth in the flesh, but he came as our substitute John uses that fun word to say, propitiation. In the Father's eternal plan to redeem his people, Christ took the punishment for their sin that the bride deserved. Each of us deserve God's wrath. Each of us is born dead in sin. None of us are good the Bible says, but we have all gone our own way. We have all rebelled against a holy God, and the word John uses here is propitiation. 
Michael Horton defines the word. He says, Jesus Christ's death satisfied God's justice and wrath against sin. In other words, God is holy. And God can no more let us off scot-free than a good judge can turn murderers loose in the street. We have sinned. We have fallen short. We have incurred wrath. You and I have rebelled against the holy God. We have broken His law. Every single one of us. And we have received a death penalty that must be paid for. You see that Jesus was the only person who ever walked a sinless life. No matter what society may say to you, friend, I promise you, you are not sinless. And being fully God, as we read in the gospel narratives, he was born holy. Christ was born holy, without sin. But he was also born a man. He was a real man that ate fish and walked around and and sweated and cried and laughed and all of these things. So as fully God, he was without sin. As fully man, he could be our substitute. He is the only one who could satisfy both requirements. And this eternal God from eternity past came to earth, was born of a virgin, walked the life that we could not walk, and then died in accordance with the scriptures. As we read last week, he was nailed to a cross. He took all the wrath of the Father that you and I deserved as our substitute, was buried, rose again three days later, conquering the grave, and ascended to the Father. And that is the first thing we see in this passage today in the way that God loved us, is he did not leave us in our sin, but sent forth his Son. And friend, if you have not turned to Christ. I encourage you to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn from Christ, and believe this gospel today. Because Christ died in our place. And because Christ's blood satisfies God's justice, we can live without fear that the wrath of God has been satisfied. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And we love because he first loved us. Because God first loved you and I who were here in Christ, we love. We can boldly approach the throne of God, not because of who we are, not because what we have earned, not because we tried hard to be really good and God said, okay, you're good enough, but because of what he did in Christ. As the old Gettys, it's not, well, I guess it's kind of old, the Gettys hymn, In Christ Alone, states, at the cross As Jesus died, God's wrath was satisfied. By Christ taking our sin and taking the full wrath of God, that wrath has been satisfied, and now we can boldly approach the creator of the universe in prayer through, as Hebrews says, his rent flesh, Christ's rent flesh, and his shed blood. We can approach without fear, and on the day of judgment, we will not have fear, not because of 
us, not because Alan McElroy is anything, but because of what Christ has done in his great love. God sent forth his son, but he also gave us his spirit. So the second thing we see in this passage is because God is love, he sent his spirit that we may know we abide in him. Look with me at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have confidence that God has set his love on us by the indwelling spirit, his spirit. At the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit comes upon all believers. There is no such thing as a two-tiered Christianity, those who have the spirit and those who do not. As the New Testament says, all, all Christians are a temple for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does not leave us when we mess up, but convicts us of our sin. The Spirit guides us into truth and illuminates His Word. And here John says Christians have God dwelling in them. Look at verses 15 and 16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Because God loves his children, we have his spirit abiding in us, illuminating his word that we might understand it, convicting us of our sin when we fail. The spirit forms us into the image of Christ. The Spirit initially applies the work of Christ to us. Christ won our victory, but the Spirit applies it to our lives. He replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And over time, the Spirit progressively makes us into a reflection of Christ. So that as we grow and as we continue on this walk, we increasingly hate our sin and increasingly desire to honor God. Horton says, the focus of the Spirit's work is to convict us of our guilt and Christ-imputed righteousness and lead us into all truth as found in Christ. Because God is love, he sent forth his Son, he gave us his Spirit, but he also gave us the church. So the third thing we see is that God's love is reflected through us to others, to the church. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let one another, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I like the quote by the English reformer and Bible translator William Tyndale. It's simple, but it sums up what John is saying. He says, Here John singeth his old song again. Love one another. Christians are to love one another. We are to desire each other's good, just as God desired our good when he sacrificed his son. He was not content to leave us in our sin, to leave us in our rebellion. 
A Christian's love for the church identifies him or her as a genuine believer. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Because God has first loved his people, his people must love each other. Because God has first loved us and made us his children, remember the Bible never says the liberal Christianity view that all human beings are God's children. As we've already seen in 1 John, some are children of God and some are children of the devil. So scripturally, you cannot make the case that all human beings are God's children. They're all created in the image of God, but they are not all his children. So since God has made us his children and first loved us, we must love one another. You cannot love God and desire the demise of his other children. The Bible will not allow it. God will not allow it. John Stott says, No one has been to the cross and seen the immeasurable and the unmerited love displayed there and go back to a life of selfishness. As you have been loved, go in love. As you have been forgiven, go and forgive. As you have had God desire your good, you seek the good of others. That shows you abide in Christ and he in you. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot, who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. John is very candid. He is very clear. He says, if you say you're a Christian and you hate Christ's bride, you're a liar. You're a liar. You have not been born again. The Spirit of God is not within you. And if you are truly saved, you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ's bride, the church. In our fallen state, we are not only blind to the gospel, but we are unable to love as we ought. That is why in my pastoral philosophy, I will never marry unbelievers. And I take a lot of heat for that, but that's okay. Because in our fallen state, we do not know how to love as God has commanded. Apart from the saving merit of Christ and the indwelling spirit, we are selfish. We can say that anyone who denies the truth of the gospel is not saved, but we can also firmly and without reservation say that anyone who hates the church is not saved. If you love God, you love his church. And in his great love, God did not leave us to walk alone, but he gave us his people. He gave us one another. He gave us the church. Because God has first loved us, we love one another. 
And he sent his son for the propitiation of our sins. God sent his spirit that we may know we abide in him. And God's love is reflected through us to others in the church. We see that the good news, the gospel, is Trinitarian. We saw it last week, we see it here. That the Father planned our salvation through, from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, and sent his Son to earth. That the Son laid down his life as a propitiation for his bride, and that the Spirit abides in God's people and applies Christ's works to them. He raises our affections for God and for one another. We love and praise our triune God for who he is and what he has done, and we love and serve the church because of the change God has wrought in our heart. We love God. We love people. Our confession of the concrete and eternal truths may show that we believe the once and for all delivered faith, but our love for one another validates that confession of faith. Christians are called to love each other but they're called to love each other according to God's word. According to God's word. In our small group, we have a break between studies, and we, this last week, went over um, six steps to faithfully read scripture. And one of those steps is you must read God's word in its original context. One of the biggest issues we run into is viewing the scriptures through a 21st century lens through a 21st century lens. In our culture, we struggle with love correctly, to love correctly, because we've replaced the biblical definition with cultural's definition. D.A. Carson says the entire framework in which Christian love is set in Scripture has been replaced. We have a sentimental, do what makes you happy, do what makes me look good framework and has taken over. Those who call themselves Christian are often squeamish to desire another's good for fear they will look bad. Christopher Morgan has a helpful, helpful instruction on this. I've actually read this before, but given our culture's tendency towards redefining, I think it's good to read it again. Christopher Morgan writes this, So what does it mean to love others? As we see, our love flows from, intends to, reflects, and is defined by God's own love. Just as God genuinely seeks the good of others and gives himself for their good, as his people, we too genuinely seek the good of others and give ourselves for their good. Christian love, that is, neither springs from itself nor tends towards itself, but delights in the honor and the glory of God for his own sake, and not merely for the sake of self. And it seeks and delights in the good of men for their sake and for this God's sake. Keep reading here. Being aware of this understanding of love is important because we sometimes mistake love for sentimentality, syrupy feelings, or cultural niceness. Some mistakenly associate love with tolerance, accepting everyone or everything, as if love were incongruent with holiness or truth. Some assume love is near, merely building relationships. Still others conclude that love is equated with actively doing something for others. But each of these perceptions of love falls short. 
Having nice feelings for someone is fine, but love goes beyond sentimentality or desiring his or her good and actively giving ourselves to help bring about that good. Love as open acceptance misunderstands that love seeks the good of others and therefore must oppose everything that hurts the person, whether they are aware of it or not. Even church leaders may find themselves substituting building relationships for love. If we are not careful, those relationships can be tools in which we seek our own good and give ourselves and give of ourselves for to help ourselves. It may be nice to win friends and influence people, but if it is not out of a genuine interest to help others, it is not love, but it is the same approach as Wall Street or the country club. Friends, we are not called to be championed by the world. Friends, we are not called to win popularity contests. We are called to be faithful and to desire the others of good and to serve our holy God that gave of himself that we might know him. Just as God desired our good and the world rejected his son, we are called to love Christ's bride and the church. And we are responsible for loving them even when they don't love us back. We are called to love them in true biblical love even when they discard us, when they misrepresent you, when they do things that are unkind, when they slander you, when they call you unloving. You are responsible to love them back. When I think about this, I think about a situation in the, uh, the Parsonage small group where I have been taking lots of ribbing, uh, because as some of you know, Sarah and I have been trying to eat better and exercise more for the past year, and one of my weaknesses, my kryptonite, if you will, is lemon Oreos, our lemon Oreos. And so I have had to tell my wife, please do not buy any more lemon Oreos, because when you leave the lemon Oreos out and I go on my break to grab a new cup of coffee, I cannot help myself but to grab five of them before I head back to the study to munch on And so I've asked her, please don't buy any more lemon Oreos. Well, one person who will remain unnamed, but you might be able to figure out, (laughs) who has, I love dearly, but has an honorier streak, has found this out and has committed himself to bringing a package of lemon Oreos by the parsonage once a week. (laughs) He hasn't done it yet, but he, he said he will. But I bring that up to say that neither this brother or my wife is responsible for me putting lemon Oreos in my mouth. I am responsible for eating Oreos, and I am responsible to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, even when they are unkind. (laughs) As those whom God has set his love on, we reflect that love to the rest of the church. So how do we love God? the church, as God has loved us. Well, friends, this morning I want to lay before you six things you can do this week to love the church. First, encourage truth about God. Encourage truth about God. Notice that before John tells the church to love one another, he may, throughout the entire book, and you see this in Paul's letters as well, before they tell us to do anything, They tell us what God has done. Before we get the imperative, we have the indicative. 
Before we hear that we are to live like this, we hear that God has saved us from sin. Before God takes the nation of Israel and said, here is my law, he brings them and saves them out of bondage in Egypt. And so we are to know God as we love one another, not vice versa. We start with God and then we work our way to man. And friends, we can say that it is not love to feed someone lies about God. One of the most loving things you can do for your brother and sister right now is encourage them to think rightly about God. Encourage someone to remember that God is love, how he sent his son, Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, the Spirit's work in our lives. Friends, these are not abstract theological things for scholars. Prime example. I've shared the story with some of you, but when I was in seminary, I, I thought I had this, this debilitating disease because I had some of the symptoms, and it ended up being I was just stressed to the max, working two jobs, had small kids, and I was a full-time graduate student. But at that time, if you get on WebMD, which is never a good idea, I know we have medical professionals here, I'm sorry I did that, um, but I thought I had this disease, and I was going through these tests and all this kind of stuff, and I sat with my buddy Chandler at the Kansas City Library downtown having a cup of coffee. It's a beautiful day. We're sitting up on the roof, and I'm, and I'm whining about this stuff and, and, and afraid I might have this illness, and he looked at me and said, Mac, you say you believe in a sovereign God. I said, well, yeah, of course I do. I mean, we had that class together. He said, doesn't sound like it. Doesn't sound like it. Bowled me over. He said, so what if you, get a, if you get a diagnosis of a debilitating disease? Are you going to sit around and cry about it, or are you going to use what time you have left to serve God? Because the fact is, you could walk out of that doctor's office saying you have two years to live and get hit by a bus. You see, friends, these are not abstract theological principles. This is not, okay, yeah, we have our theology here, but this is what we really need for life. Friends, this is for life. Knowing that God is love, and that the Son died for us, and that we have the indwelling Spirit that is progressively changing me into something I couldn't do on my own, and that God is sovereign over all of it, is for life. Encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ to think rightly about God. Encourage truth. And second, point each other to Christ, not to themselves and not to ourselves. As we walk through life together, we encourage one another with the gospel. When someone gets down, friend, point them to Christ. Don't say to them, hey, you know, you're, you're just a beautiful person and you're so lovely and all this kind of stuff. And don't say to them, hey, text me at any time. I'm always here for you. I mean, be there for them, yes. But try not to point them towards themselves. Friends, I didn't come to catch a can because you need Alan McElroy's thoughts. You need Christ. You need Christ in every part of your life. You are limited. I am limited. My plans go to the grave with me, as Psalm 46, 146 says. You are limited. Christ is limitless. Every single one of us in here is finite. Christ is infinite. Our lives are but a wisp. Some of you who are older in the room can attest to that. We will all be in a grave a lot sooner than we want to be. But Christ rose from the grave. Point others to him. Third, Hold each other accountable. This week, whether it is confronting a heretic, an adulterer, or a gossip, true love always confronts sin. 
I heard a quote this week, or read a quote that says, when you want to help people, you tell them truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. You want to be liked. You want them to say you're good. Robert Murray McShane said, the person who loves you the most tells you the most truth. So friends, as we walk through life together, we hold each other accountable. Lovingly, but we hold each other accountable. Jamie Owen says we can define accountability as partnering together to walk in the light. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. The Bible says we are to do things like warn divisive people to not chase the wisdom of the world. That sexually immoral, the greedy, the slanderer, the drunkard will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says more than that, but that's just a few. The Bible commands us to correct those in sin. The Bible says that we are to walk in a manner worthy of God, that we are to bring people back to truth, that we are to guard the truth, and we are to fight the good fight. The Bible doesn't say try the good try. It says fight the good fight. It takes courage to look at a friend and say, friend, this sounds like gossip. Maybe we should go talk to her about this. Yeah, they're not going to like you a lot in that moment. But who would you rather honor, yourself or God? It takes courage to go to someone and say, the things you are doing is not right. This is what the Bible says about it. I've had to do it, both here and other places. It's not fun. But if we want to honor God, if we truly desire another's good, we care about their spiritual welfare and the welfare of Christ's church. But we also care about their physical welfare. Fourth, meet physical needs. I almost, I, ha, I put this in there, but I almost feel like I don't have to because I think some of y'all have like a casserole on standby at all times. <laughs> I think some of y'all have a pot of soup in the freezer ready to go for when someone gets sick or there's a loss in the family. When our family is in need, the church steps up to meet that need. When an older member needs to move a bed, right, like they don't have to hire somebody. Because I look around this room and there's a lot of younger members that can help move a bed. That's one way we love one another. We unload trailers. We help fix um, cars. Uh, to, it'll help you zero in on who the person is, so I almost don't say it, but the Henri brother with the lemon uh, Oreos has fixed my car many a time. He's even told me before, if you keep me tuned up theologically, I'll keep you tuned up mechanically. <laughs> but we all have our different giftings, and we use them to serve the body. When a missionary needs support to take the gospel to foreign lands, friends, we instinctively reach for our billfolds and our pocketbooks. What physical needs can you help meet in the body this week? How can you use what God has loaned you to serve his bride, to serve Christ's bride? Fifth, Encourage one another in the faith. 1 Thessalonians 1, actually just 1 Thessalonians, Paul says to encourage one another and build one another up. Christians are to spur one another on to good works. We cheer one another to press on in the faith as we run this race together. Encouragement is not the same as flattery. We don't have a lot of time to go into this, but 1 Thessalonians also says we did not come to the church with flattery. Proverbs 29 says the one who flatters lays a trap for his neighbor. So what are some differences? 
Flattery is saying overly flowery things in public so that people think you're a good person, maybe to gain some benefit, to gain some advantage. Flattery is calculated. The person wants to look good or maybe look more holy than everyone else in the room. Encouragement spurs another person on to serve God or notices evidences of God's grace in their life and reminds them of God's goodness. There is a fundamental difference in the two. So who could you give a brief word of encouragement to in the body this week? Friends, one of the best things you can do, you can do it verbally, but is drop a handwritten note in the mail. It may encourage someone in this church more than you know. If you notice someone faithfully working behind the scenes and you are grateful for them, let them know how you feel. If you see the person that comes in early every Sunday morning and makes coffee and you are grateful for that, maybe consider dropping them a note. If you notice someone's always clicking slides so that you don't have to hold a hymn book, maybe drop them a note or someone that works in the nursery so that busy moms can be fed during worship. A handwritten note or even a quick word urging someone to press on may mean more to them than you realize. And it only takes you a couple of seconds. Along with encouragement, lift one another up. Sixth, pray for one another. Pray for one another. Friends, it's like cliche to say we live in a dark context. Right? Like I, I jokingly say sometimes that, you know, we fight the good fight, that the Christian life is warfare. Like my training before I was a Christian as a paratrooper trained me for here because we are surrounded. We're on an island. We can't get away, and we must pray for one another. Pray for the needs in the church bulletin. There's a list there of people that are going through different things or different things we would like to see happen. Pray through that list throughout the week. Instead of tossing it in the trash on the way out the door, we specifically make it the size that it is because it'll fit right in your Bible. And so when you open up to read your Bible every morning, you have a list right there you can pray. Next, if you're a member, pray through the church directory. We have a free church directory, an app you can download if you're a member of the church, and I pray through it each week, and I see everybody's smiling, happy faces, and I look at it, and I say, oh, there's Dennis. You know, he's got a trip coming up. I need to pray for him in that trip, and there's Alan, and I know he's got to work late on Saturday. I need to pray for him in that, and pray for one another, because one guy is not enough. Look at the faces of your brothers and sisters in Christ and lift them up to the Lord. Next, pray for the leaders of the church. Pray for your elders. Spurgeon once told his church, he's like, if, if one day you cease to pray for me, please let me know so I can resign. Because your pastors, your elders need your prayer. We generally always have something going on behind the scenes and we are trying to be faithful and we need wisdom and we need encouragement. So pray for us. Ask God to give us wisdom. When I think about the church, you can't help but go to Acts chapter 2 and seeing the church, meeting each other's needs and glorifying God and sitting under the apostles' teaching. And friends, we are to strive for that. Because God is love, God's children will love one another we love and praise God for who he is and what he has done for us in Christ, and we love and serve the church because of the change he has wrought in our heart. Father, we praise your holy name for who you are, that you are holy, that you are merciful, that you are gracious, and that you sent your son to die 
on a tree for the sins that I committed and others in this room. And Father, I pray for those who have not yet trusted your Son. God, I pray that you would break their hearts this morning, that you would call them to yourself, that you would open their eyes to see their need of the gospel, and that they would turn and repent. And Father, I pray that we as a church would embody what we read in Scripture, that we would reject the things of the world, the wisdom of the world, but cling to your word because we know that your instruction is perfect and that no one can discern any errors of yours because there are none. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.